Okay, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, tonight's class has been dedicated by not, not just tonight's class, but the whole week's class. All the classes this week has been dedicated by Yol Pesel. That's in honor of his birthday. May the Ebrish to Benjamin with the Shnaz Brachanatzlacha. Wonderful, wonderful, good year with a lot of prosperity, good health, and Atzlacha Rabu Maflaga and everything both in the material and in the spiritual. Thank you so much. Another dedication this week was by Rabbi Yochanan and Shoshana Mansuri. And this is in honor of Mrs. Mansuri's mother. Prisada Bada Bas Shimon Shalom. May your neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. And may she channel lots and lots and lots of brachas to you and your family for only, only mazel bracha and only, only, only good things. Endless and boundless brachas, good health, parnasa brachava, and only, only good. Thank you so much for that dedication. Okay, we are ready to begin tonight's class. This week's parsha is parsha's vayetze. And in the beginning of the parsha, we read, and then the parsha uh, talks about Yaakov escaping the wrath of his brother Esav, and going down to Mesopotamia to his uncle Lavan. On the way of his escape, um, Yaakov stops by on a mountain, which we know is Haramaria, the Temple Mount, and he lies down. And so, what happened when he got there was this mysteriously, the unexpectedly, even though it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, um, the sun set. And as a result of the sun setting, Yaakov lied down and went. He couldn't go anywhere. It was dark, so he went to sleep. And God did that intentionally because he wanted Yaakov to sleep in that place. When the, when the Pasuk tells us about this, the Pasuk says, Vayishkav, that he lied down, ahu, on that place. So what's the meaning that he lied down? So okay, he went to sleep. Why does it say that he laid down ahu, in that place? So the emphasis that he went to sleep on that place is telling us that he only slept over here. This is where he slept, but he didn't sleep elsewhere. The question is, 
what's the elsewhere that Yaakov did not sleep? We know where he slept, but we don't know where he did not sleep. What is the pasuk, what is the verse trying to emphasize when it says he slept here and nowhere else? So um, the Medrash says um, that the when that that um, prior to Yaakov coming to um, to this to th- that night to sleep in this place in the on the Temple Mount, he had taken a detour. He ran away from his parents' home, and we left Be'er Sheva. And as he as he left, instead of going straight to Lavan's house, he made a detour. He stopped in the yeshiva in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever, and he spent 14 years. That's shocking. I mean, you would expect he's, he's going there. Well, we understand. He might be going there because maybe Esau will catch on to that he's going to his escaping to Lavan and then he would catch him, so to hide. But you can't really say that he's doing it to hide because where else would Esau expect Yaakov to be if not for in yeshiva? It's the second best place to look for him. So there must be another reason. The reason Yaakov went to the house of Shem Ve'ever at that time, to the yeshiva, was in order to fill himself with the power of Torah and the spiritual energy so he's going to be able to endure going down into the challenges of Haran. Lavan's was notorious to be a very, very dangerous person and the environment, Haran itself, was a... The word Haran has a meaning of anger. It's a place that stimulates or evokes God's wrath. That's how lowly Haran is. And because of that, Yaakov knew that he's going in such a spiritual uh, deprived place. He needed oxygen. So therefore he went to study. For how long? Not a week, not a month, not a year. 14 years. During the 14 years that Yaakov was there, he did not lay down in a bed even for one night. Of course he dozed off because a person can't live sleep deprived for such such an extended period of time. But to lay down in a bed that he didn't do. And that's why the Pasuk says, here is where he slept, but there he didn't sleep. That's one opinion. There's another opinion. The Medrash brings, it's an argument between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nechemia. Rabbi Nechemia says that when it says he slept over here and excluding somewhere else, it's talking about the following 20 years. That means once Yaakov spent this night over here and God appeared in to Yaakov and he gave him all the blessings and he had the ladder and he saw the angels going up and down and the next day he woke up in the morning and he continued on and he got to Haran and he spent 20 years in Haran so during the 20 year period that he was by his uncle Lavan's house he was a hired worker and he in that in, in that job of taking care of the flocks of Lavan um, Yaakov did not go to sleep normally in a bed even one night because he felt the responsibility of the sheep. So again, either it's the 14 years prior or it's the 20 years after. That night, he slept. Then the Medrash continues and it asks a question, what did Yaakov say? What did he say? What did Yaakov say? And the Medrash says, meaning during the time. So, obviously it's not asking the question during the, if we say it's the 14 years. Because if it's the 14 years, what did Yaakov say? He was studying in yeshiva. That's what he was saying. He was learning Torah. 
But during the 20 years, if we say it's the 20 years after that night, so then the question is, what did Yaakov say? And the answer the Medrash gives is that there is also two opinions. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Omar, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, Tezvav Shir Hamalos. He said 15 Shir Hamalos, which are songs, Tehillim, from Psalm 120 through 134, from Kufchaf to Kufchaf to Kuf Lamed Dalid. These kapitlach, these Psalms of Tehillim, all start with the word Shir Hamalos, which means the song of the ascent of the stairs. And I mean, simply David HaMelech composed, sang those songs corresponding to the 15 steers that went from the lower courtyard in the temple to the upper courtyard, were 15 steers. And the Levites, the Levium, would sit, stand on those steers and play musical instruments during the Sukkis festivities. Simchus Beis HaShu'eva, corresponding to that, he made these 15 shiramas. Comes out from here that David HaMelech was not the composer. These were ancient songs. Because Yaakov Avinu, either he composed it, or it was even earlier than Yaakov. But what did Yaakov do those 15 years? He said the 15 Shir Hamalos. How do we know that? My timer. Usually my timer means what's the reason. Here my timer means how do we know? Well, he brings a pasuk. Shir Hamalos Ledavid. A song on the steers. Ledavid for David. Lulei Hashem Shahoyalanu, if not for God being with us, Yoimar no Yisrael says, says Yisrael. So what does the Medrash say? Simply it means, if not for God watching over us, Israel say, who's Israel? The Jewish people. But the Medrash says, no, Yoimar no Yisrael, Yisrael says it. Who's Yisrael? That's Yaakov. Yisrael Saba, our grandpa Yaakov. Our grandfather Yaakov, he is the one who said, the Lulei Hashem Shahayalanu, if not for God being with us, which means he said these kapitlach tehillim. That's one opinion. Reb Shmuel bar Nachman Omar. Reb Shmuel, the son of Nachman, says, Kol Sefer Tehillim Haya Oimer. He said the entire book of Tehillim. It wasn't only these 12, these 15 Psalms, but he said all of Tehillim. Ma'atam, how do we know that? It says, Va'ata Kadesh, and you are holy, Hashem, or you holy one. Yoishev, you sit. Tehillah Yisrael on the praises of the Jewish people. Who are the praises of the Jewish people? It, again, it should not be read. Tehillah Yisrael, the praises of Israel, in terms of us, the descendants of Yaakov. But who is it? The Medrash says Yisrael Saba, our grandfather Yisrael. So again, we have two opinions what Yaakov Avinu was occupied with during the time that he wasn't sleeping during those 20 years in the house of love. Let's go back to the question a minute. When the Medrash says, what was he, Mahoya Oymer, what was he saying? What does that mean? Who said he said anything? What does this mean? What did he say? So who says he said? Maybe he didn't say anything. Obviously we can't say that what? The Medrash is asking what was he busy with? I mean he didn't sleep, so there must have been a reason he didn't sleep. He wasn't just not sleeping. So why? It was an insomnia. Why wasn't he sleeping? Because he was busy with something. So if the Medrash is saying, what did he say? But we know what he was busy with. He was a faithful worker. He was hired, and therefore he was taking care of the flocks day and night. Actually, halachically, the laws of an employee and how devoted an employee needs to be to the work that he's doing is actually learned out from Yaakov. Yaakov gives a whole sermon to Lavan later in the parsha how faithful he was in his work and that he, he deprived sleep from his eyes and so on and so forth. From here we learn out, which is, by the way, an important lesson for us today because we're living in a world where people take so, 
so lightly this idea that you're working for someone and during that time everybody people watch little videos and all, all kinds of other stuff and everybody feels it's okay when it when you're being paid for that time you may literally not do that because it's in a sense it's a form of thievery in any case so we see clearly what Yaakov was doing so what's the question so we have to say a little deeper that what really the Medrash is asking what was Yaakov saying the Medrash was, was saying like this we understand that when Yaakov was going down into Lavan's house it was a very 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 hard and difficult challenging period in his life Lava was the biggest con artist in the world, a thief, a liar, a dangerous criminal. And as we mentioned earlier, the environment itself were Lavan's buddies. Uh, Charan, as we said before, is a place that was very, very, very lowly, very, very unholy, a very dark place. And Yaakov is a tzaddik, and he's coming from a very, very holy home. He's coming from Yitzchak and Rivka, from a very godly environment. And he's entering in such a and the question is, how is he going to endure? What is going to be his energy? How is he going to withstand the temptations, the questions, the whatever problems, all the nisyonos, all the tests, trials and tribulations that are going to be sent his way when he finds himself in such a dangerous, such a hostile environment? And we understand that he probably had something that he could say. How do we know he's going to say something? Because... The words, what did he say? I'm sorry, when, when Yitzchak benched Yaakov, when his father Isaac benched him, his father told him, Hakol Kol Yaakov. The voice is the voice of Yaakov. And the hands on the hands of Esau. That means that Yaakov's power is in his voice. Something that he says. The voice is either the voice of Torah or the voice of Tefillah. Of, of, of Torah study or prayer, that's his power. So if he needs to conjure up energy and strength to be able to withstand the difficult challenges that he's going to be in, we can understand that he said something. But what did he say? Now, I would say, um, so one opinion is that he said to Hillam. Now that we can understand why he's saying to Hillam. First of all, we can say whenever we're in trouble, we say to him. What keeps us during this long exile when we're going through quite significant challenges and difficulties. It was that, that tear-soaked Tehillim that has always stood by the Jewish people throughout history, which gives us the strength. So Yaakov also kept on saying Tehillim for it to get strength. On the, we can say that. Or even stronger than that, what Yaakov would study Torah, but he couldn't study Torah. Because if he's studying Torah, then he's not watching the sheep. Torah, to study Torah properly, takes all of your mental concentration. And he has a flock to take care of. So he couldn't study Torah. So, so what does he do in order to substitute Torah study? The book of Tehillim. Because when David HaMelech composed the book of Tehillim, the Gemara says that David HaMelech asked King David, asked God, and he said, let it be considered that if someone recites Tehillim as if they, they were studying the most intricate, difficult passages of the Torah, of the tractates of Negoyim and Aholos, which are two tractates of Shas, of the Talmud that are the most, the most difficult to comprehend and to understand. And King David said, let my book of Tehillim, which is pretty, pretty easy to say, be considered as if someone is studying such difficult things. So now that Yaakov cannot study Torah, so what is he using as a substitute? He's saying Tehillim, and that's what kind of, that's his Torah study, which he would like to be doing during this time. So that we understand. Question, however, is on the other opinion that says, 
that Yaakov was saying the 15 Shir Hamalos, 15 songs of ascent. The question is, why particularly these 15? I mean, I can understand he's saying to heal him, but why these 15? What is special in terms of Yaakov gaining strength to be able to withstand this exile? What is so special about the 15 Shir Hamalos that this is what gives him the strength during this, this, this Galas? Why this out of all the other Tehillim? And obviously he must have said this quite a lot of times because he's there 20 years and he probably can say it in seven minutes from the beginning to the end and he's doing this for 20 years, I guess every night. So, um, so here's an interesting idea. In the Sefer Chida, uh, he has a Sefer, the Chida, which was the great Sephardic uh, uh, giants and rabbis, Kabbalists and, and, uh, and uh, Talmudists, the Chida writes that in Sefer Yosef Tehillos, that the, that the reason there are 15 Shir Hamalos, 15 Psalms of Ascent, they correspond to 15 years that our forefathers lived, our patriarchs, our forefathers lived simultaneously in this, in this world. That means there was a period of time, now the world was, imagine how fortunate the world was to have Avram Avinu being alive in its time. A lucky, fortunate period of time to have a tzaddik like Avram illuminate the world. And then, when Yitzhak was the tzaddik, how amazing it was. And then finally, Yaakov being the chosen of all the forefathers when he was in the world. But it was one, one, and then the next, and then the next. Was there any time that the world was so fortunate to have these three tzaddikim all living together alive at the same time? Well, for 15 years. Why? Because Avram Avinu was 175 years old when he passes away. Yitzchak was born when Avram was 100. Okay, so Isaac is born when Abraham and Avram is 100. Yaakov is born when Yitzchak is 60. That means that when Yaakov is born, Yaakov, Avram, his grandfather, is 160. Now, um, Avram dies at 175. That means from when Avram is 160 to when he's 175, he has a son alive in this world and his grandson. So for those 15 years, all three of our patriarchs were alive in this world. Corresponding to that, there is the 15 Shiramalos. Based on that thought. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe says it in a very, very beautiful idea. And he says, based on that idea, we can understand why Yaakov used these 15 Shir Hamalois, why Yaakov used these 15, um, said these 15 Shir Hamalois during that, during that period of time. Because um, Yaakov is, in addition to his own spiritual strength, he wanted to evoke the strength and the, and the power also of his father and of his, and of his grandfather. In other words, he realized that his own strength and his own abilities Aren't, aren't enough for him to be able to deal with the, with the hardships that were going to come his way, with the, t- with, with the tests that he was going to endure. So therefore, he harnessed not only his own strength, he harnessed the strength of his father and the strength of his grandfather, and that's what he did. And we, talk, and we actually see that later during his confrontation with Lavan at the end of the Torah portion, when Yaakov escapes, Lavan runs after him, they have a skirmish. And, 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 and Lavan says to Yaakov, what have you done? Where have you run away with my... My family, you wanted to, you know. 
And, Yaakov, and, and so Yaakov says to him, what are you talking about? I served you with, with no, because Yaakov says, I was afraid you would harm me. And Lovin says, I would never have harmed you, you know. And Yaakov says, it's not true. If not for my God of my father and my grandfather, then you would have crushed me. You would have, you would have hurt me. So you see clearly that Yaakov is attributing his survival not only to his own power, but the, power, the strength, the power of his father and the power of his grandfather. So that's the meaning why Yaakov said 15 Shir HaMalos because encapsulated in these 15 Shir HaMalos is the energy of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov together. But now let's take it a step deeper. Why can't Yaakov overcome his adversaries, his, his challenges, only with his own strength? Generally we know the rule, Lefim Gamla Shechna, according to the camel, is the load. That we will never stack a pile, pile a load on a camel more than the camel can endure. A larger camel will get a larger load. God doesn't test us more than what we can handle. If that's the case, why does Yaakov have to take Avram's strength and Yitzchak's strength? Why can't he just have his own strength? So the answer to that is something really uh, amazing. There is a, 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 um, a short, a mimer or a letter from the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, which he brings... Um, a, 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 talks about a war that happened in the, in the days of his grandfather between, I couldn't really understand exactly the letter because it was written in a handwriting. It didn't, it was not printed, it's just in a handwriting. And over there, and, um, and I couldn't make up exactly the, all the words that was written, but over there it says that there was a war between Frederick, the king of, I don't know where, um, fighting a war against some other people. And they had a, and Frederick won the war. And how did they win the war? So there was a special strategy that they used in that particular battle. What was the strategy? Usually when they would go out to war, so army is facing off against another army. They're foes, so they're both coming to the battlefield, one against the other. And then, you know, charge, and they all go out in the middle and they're killing each other, right? But the way it worked was that they would have a middle, a, a battalion in the center, and then it would be flanked by two flanks on the side. One on, the other, one on the right side and one on the left side. This is how they were set up. Maybe like a segel, one in the middle here, two, people on, two groups on the back, on the two sides. The other side, the other, ar- the other opposing army would do the same thing. And then they would all go off against each other and that's how they would battle. What Frederick did, which no one expected, was he took all of his three and faced it all towards one. So they all went running towards one, one, oppo- one group instead of all three. And when they defeated and, and they overwhelmed that, that particular uh, uh, you know, uh, battalion, and, as a reason, and then they moved on to the next, all three against one, and finally all three against the last one. Now, obviously, this tactic won't work too much uh, because, you know, obviously, what's with the other? I mean, you can only do it once, or it's not a, but this is what was done, and this is how they won the war. So the Tzemach Tzedek writes that um, everybody, everything needs to be a lesson in Avodah Hashem. Everything needs to teach us in our service of God. So how does this teach us in our service of Hashem? So he says an amazing thing. He says that um, we all struggle with uh, various different tests, very different uh, challenges. And primarily we know that there are three, three um, main emotions in a human being. There is the emotion of chesed, which also means, besides kindness, the deeper energy of chesed is love, attraction. 
there is the emotion of gevura and the deeper element, which means strength, but the deeper, it means fear, discipline, and the like. Then there's an emotion called rachamim, the emotion of compassion, teferis, which is, uh, you know, a third emotion. And these are the three primary emotions in the human psyche. They're the the root of all other types of emotion. They're all offshoots of this. Now, these emotions can be in a holy way, in a holy way. We can experience love to Hashem. We can experience fear of God. We can experience um, compassion for holy things. But on the other hand, we can also experience, um, we all know how powerful these are, we can experience intense attractions and loves towards things that we shouldn't be loving and things that are not kosher. And uh, so the question is, how do we deal generally? When we feel, when we're confronted with an emotion, when we're confronted with an unholy desire or want, how do we respond to it? So um, the, the, the normal way in which we, I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a, if a person is... is um, serious about beating his Yetzirah on his evil inclination. So usually the rule is you fight fire with fire. Meaning, if you're experiencing unholy lusts, unholy desires, evoke with, deep within yourself a love, but let the love be a love towards that which is great and that which is deserving of love. Now, and I want to clarify, this doesn't mean that the moment your heart is burning with some kind of a taiva, with some kind of a desire that's not kosher, you're going to start now meditating on something holy. You're, there's no space in your psyche to start meditating right now. You're completely consumed with whatever it is. That's not what we're talking about. We're, then at that moment, the only thing you can really draw on to overcome it is either fear of God, you have Yerushalayim, you fear the Yebishter, and that could cancel the... And you say, no matter what, I really want so-and-so, but I'm not doing it because I'm afraid of God. Or you could evoke the love to Hashem, but not a love like, like I love God, so-and-so. It's more like, I cannot, I know that by doing this so-and-so, I'm going to sever my connection with Hashem. This is going to disconnect me. And I cannot afford to lose my relationship with God. It's too costly. It's like many times, we want something, and we look at the price tag, and it's just too much money. I can't afford it. I want it very much. I would love to have a Ferrari. I just don't have the money to pay for a Ferrari, and I'm not going to mortgage my home and everything to get a Ferrari. So you know what? The love is going to go unanswered. It's going to go unfulfilled. I just can't afford it. When a person realizes that what's at stake is your connection with an infinite, absolute being, and you're all of eternity, you're, that's at stake now. You're going to sever yourself on that, and I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to do it. That's what you use at a moment of a crisis when you're being challenged cha- cha- challenged by a difficult niso and a, and, a, and a difficult test in order to be able to overcome it. However, I'm not talking about that. What we're talking about now is when you're not in the, in the, in the, in the caught, in the moment of an enticing whatever. You're not in the moment of... You're just troubled by the fact that you have an, an inclination towards things that are not kosher and they're not good. You're dealing... In other words, when you're not caught up in the, in the klipa, when you're not caught up in that, in that burning desire, and you're just recognizing that I have within me the potential or the, 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 a hidden dormant desire that can be triggered any moment to want something that's not kosher and not holy. So how do you deal with that? How do you, if you want to get rid of it, I want to burn it out. I want to get rid of having that. I don't want to have to deal with that every day. How do I negate at the core, that, that, that negative emotion. The answer is, 
drain your love. You have love. Drain the love from the unholy and drain it into the holy. Which means, yes, I love so and so and so, this and this, but there is something so much greater than love. And you meditate on how magnificent and beautiful and, and, and great God is, and then you realize you fill your heart with love to Hashem. There isn't much left unholy love to, to spill in an un, to, 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 um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to be drawn to that which is not, 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 not holy. That's usually, and how about a fear? If you're experiencing, you're afraid of, of somebody, you're, you're being abused, you're, 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 you're weak because of fear of whatever, so on and so forth. You shouldn't be afraid, but you are afraid. You're afraid to stand up and so on and so forth. Fear God, and that's going to give you, that's going to take away the fear of anybody else. That's usually the the advice that is given when you are facing each midah of holiness, every emotion of holiness can counter the unholy emotion on the other side. But this is the teaching that we're learning now, that even though that will work, but that's not going to assure complete and absolute victory. If you want to decimate the klipa completely, that there shouldn't be even a, a, a possibility for it to re, reassurge again or to re to reassert itself. You don't want it to be even a possibility for the, for the unholy to come back. Then what you need to do is you need to concentrate all three emotions and wage war against one, one, um, one particular mida of unholiness. Unleash the power of all three emotions of your soul. Your chesed, your gevura, and your teferis simultaneously in kedusha. That's going to be so powerful that the klipa. And what does that mean practically? You work on loving Hashem, and at the same time evoking a sense of awe and fear of God, and at the same time also a feeling of compassion. Now, by the way, just parenthetically, what does it mean? A how do you serve God with compassion? So the idea of serving God with compassion. One of the ways is that you feel compassion for your beautiful neshama. You realize that your soul is a piece of God from above. Your soul has journeyed down from the highest, highest spiritual heights. The soul has come down from the celestial realms in which it is literally for thousands of years basking in God's light. It's experiencing the deepest delight and the deepest pleasure of the oneness of Hashem. And then that neshama comes down into this dark body. And now I'm going to abuse my neshama and pull my soul into the toilet. And that's what I'm going to do. And I realize that. I feel pity and I feel compassion for, for the soul. The, the higher, one, the more one appreciates the loftiness of their spirit, of their soul, the greater they recognize how pitiful the state that the neshama has to endure through all the escapades that we put our soul through in which we take our neshama because whatever we do in our life our soul comes along with it so you're taking the princess who's used to living in a palace and you're dragging her through muddy dungeons stinky smelly dungeons and that's well, if you do it to anybody it's horrible how much more so a princess and this is the idea of compassion this idea by the way is explained that this is, was an, the inside story of what, what is described in the parsha. A stunning story. Yaakov meets Rachel at the well. And when they meet, it says that Yaakov sees Rachel. And he goes over to her. And he, first he removes the, 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 the stone. 
and he allows the sheep to drink, that Rachel is the daughter of Lavan, his, his future wife. And then they talk, and Yaakov cries, and he kisses Rachel. He raises, he kissed her, and then he raises his voice and he cries. It's very strange. I mean, this is our grandfather, Yaakov. He's like a very super, super, super holy man, right? The holiest, doesn't get holier than that. And here he's on the first date, the first time he meets her, and he's already kissing. Something is a little off in this situation over here. How does it pasnish? You know, you say for anybody, even someone who's not Yaakov Avinu for something like that. There is a, there is, so what, what's going on? So we need to understand this on a more spiritual level. We need to realize, I'm not saying that there wasn't a physical kiss, but we have to realize that Yaakov Avinu is operating, our father Yaakov is operating on a completely godly scale. You see, Yaakov is the personification of the attribute of Teferis. And Teferis means rachamim, compassion. So he is, in a sense, God's act attribute of compassion. God's attribute of compassion is infinite. Rachel is the neshama. So what's really happening over when Yaakov is meeting Rachel, what's happening is God's attribute of compassion is coming face to face with a soul. And when God's attribute of compassion sees a neshama, what does happens? What happens? It causes Hashem to feel such pity for the poor neshama that it comes down into the world that God is moved that God is moved to tears. Not just a little tears, a lot of tears. And this is so, so important for us to realize because most of the times we think that God is angry at us, He's upset at us, He's looking at us like, why did you do that again? What's with you? And we don't realize that God is really crying most of the time when He sees our struggle, when He sees how difficult it is for us, when He sees the hardships, when He realized that He put us through all this difficulties. He knows it's for our good, but at the same time he weeps for us. That's the meaning that when Yaakov sees Rachel, Rachel is the Shekhinah, the mother of all souls. So when he sees the Shekhinah who is going to endure all this suffering, he cries for her. And that's also the meaning of the kiss. The meaning of the kiss is because he pities her so much, he kisses her, meaning he allows her, even while she's down in the body, to experience a reunification with her spiritual source above, with God. That's what a kiss is. What's a kiss? Two people connect their breath to each other. In this case, it's God's breath becoming one with the soul, with the person. While the neshama is in a body, his breath and our breath are becoming one. How does that happen? When we learn Torah, Torah is the kiss. Why? Because Torah is God's words. It's God speaking. And when we're learning Torah, we're speaking it through our mouth, so our words and his words, the breath from the person and the breath of Hashem are becoming intertwingled, intertwined together, one and each other, and that's the kiss. So we understand that's what it means. So to serve God with compassion means to... Re- the gr- and that's why it's also the attribute of teferis. Teferis means beauty. The more one appreciates the beauty and the splendor of the divine, the more pitiful it's the, it is for someone that has left that majestic beauty. So that's how you feel beauty. So now going back to the 15 Shir Hamalos, even though Yaakov Avinu himself is the power of compassion, and that itself is powerful to overcome the, when a person is tested with a test, if they can only feel <coughs> compassion <coughs> for, them, for their soul, they will withstand the temptation. But in order to knock out the temptation that it should never ever appear ever again, it should never ever tempt us, it should never, we should be able to like completely devastate it completely, Yaakov Avinu 
use the method that Frederick did in his, in his battle. He evoked not only the energy of himself, but the energy of his grandfather Avram, which is the energy of love of Hashem. He didn't suffice with that. He also stimulated within himself a powerful awareness of God bringing him to awe. And then as well with that, appreciated the splendor of God bringing him to compassion. And as he used these three forces of his soul against any individual power that, w- that might come his way on the other side, any unholiness, he was able to withstand it. That's the reason why he said these 15 shira malas. Now why the number 15? So here's an interesting idea. Why 15? We know that in God's name is Yud Kei Vav Kei, the Tetragrammaton, which has four letters, Yud, Ahei, and Avav, and Ahei. 15, 15 is the first half of God's name. Yud and Hei, first half of God's name, is 15. So 15 represents the Yud Kei. <coughs> what is so significant about that? We know that Yud and Hei correspond to Chachma and Bina, intellect. The Yud and the Hei are the more intellectual faculties of the divine. The Vav and the Hei, the latter two letters of God's name, those are the emotions. So generally we know there is a rule. When your heart is filled with, a heart can only be filled consciously with one emotion. If you're feeling love, you can't at the same time experience fear. If you're experiencing fear, you can't feel love. Because love and fear are two opposite emotions. One is an attraction, an expansion. The other one is a contraction. The opposite of an expansion, a closing. So these two can't be felt in the heart at the same time. So, But here we're talking about simultaneous emotions. Three emotions in the conscious awareness of a person at the same time. So it's interesting, I think it says in... in uh, in a medrash, I think, or in Rabbeinu, I don't recall right now, it says that only in the service of God is one able to have love and fear at the same time. In worldly matters, it's either love or fear. You can't have both. But only when we're connecting to God, we can experience that. But what's the deeper meaning of that? When the emotions are purely emotions, then one emotion is, then the emotions don't tolerate each other. But when the emotions are clinging to their intellectual cause, when in the emotion you sense the reason why you're loving. In other words, it's not just the love. There is an intelligent emotion. The emotion set, there is, there is, there is an, so then, if the one that I am loving should, is both lovable and fearable, if we can say, then the emotion, then, then, and my emotion is not disconnected from the reason why I'm having the emotion, but the intellect the, the, the light of the intellect is shining in the emotion, it can allow for opposite emotions to sit at the same time, be unified, and experience simultaneously. That's why. It's the number 15, which is the yudke of, the yud and the hey of Hashem's name, which are the intellectual aspects, the chachman the abina, they allow for the 15 shira malaises to be sung at the same time, which means the simultaneous presence of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Opposite emotions, opposite experiences at the same time. That's why Yaakov Avinu said these 15 Shira Malos, and that's why it's 15. Now just to conclude, which is very important. So this explains why he's emphasizing during his difficult challenge, but uh, the, the Shira Malos. But just, we gotta wonder, why does he open up with these words, Shira Hamalos, a song? 
we would think that, okay, he's using these psalms as an as a invigorator to be able to withstand, but what's there to sing about? I mean, obviously, I mean, he, Avram is going through a hellish, right? Avram is going through, Avram is going through a hellish challenge. It's difficult for him. It's hard. He's suffering. Yeah. So, okay. So he's, he's praying, but why is he singing? What's the sheer? What's the song? There is no song here. So here's a very, very important idea. When you realize that the, when you, when you recognize, when you understand, and the deeper you appreciate God's infinite goodness and kindness, then you have to come to a conclusion that anything you're going through must be for an infinitely good reason. And even if temporarily it's difficult and it's hard, you can only trust that your beloved one and only Father in Heaven would not be giving you this challenge if this is not going to make you a much stronger person. That's what we find by Yaakov, that after the, 50, after the 20 years he was at Lovin's house, he came out enriched with a powerful, powerful enrichment. He became, the Pasuk says, both physically and, both spiritually and physically, first of all, he built a family. When he came to Haran, as great as it was in Yitzhak's house, he was alone. When he came back, he had four wives, he had 11, 12 children, 11 boys and one girl, almost his entire family. He came there with barely a staff in his hand. In his hand. He came back now, he's a millionaire, he's got this flood, right? So he, he prospered, but spiritually as well. He took out all the sparks of holiness that were there. He came back such a rich man. Through what? Through the trials and tribulations. When Yaakov was able to see the ultimate purpose of what is going to come out of it, he was able to sing even during the hardship, because to him it was a song. Recognizing that it will be good, the good of the end was already felt even during the hardship. He never got depressed. And so we find, similar to that, um, one of the sages, the Talmud tells us a story about the sages. There is a later sage, his name is Akiva. And the interesting thing about Rabbi Akiva is that Akiva and Yaakov have almost the same name. They're just, the letters are different, arranged, but Akiva and Yaakov, same name. And the Arizal says that Rabbi Akiva is somewhat an offshoot of Yaakov's soul, whether he's a reincarnation or a partial reincarnation, but he is rooted in Yaakov. That's why his name is Akiva, which is close to Yaakov. And we know that the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Akiva and the sages were once um, walking in the, in, in, by and they saw the destruction of the Holy Temple. They saw the Beis Amikdash in ruins. They lived put right after the period after the Beis Amikdash was destroyed. And they saw a fox coming out of the place where the Holy of Holies once stood. In other words, it was so in ruins, it turned into a field, a plowed field, that a fox was going there. And the sages saw that, and they were so horrified, because they realized a place that was so holy, that, that even the high priests, the holy of the holy, can't go in there, or barely once a year, and even then, yeah, many people didn't even survive that. And now the place is so destroyed, and so, so uprooted, that even a non-kosher animal can walk freely over there. It was very, very, very disheartening. And all the sages started crying. And Rabbi Akiva is laughing. So the sages turn to Rabbi Akiva and they say, Rabbi Akiva, what's with you? Is this the time to laugh? Why are you laughing? And Rabbi Akiva says, why are you crying? And they said, because look, take a look. There's all the reason to cry. And Rabbi Akiva said, that's why I'm laughing. Because when I see the prophecy of destruction fulfilled, I know the prophecy of rebuilding will be 
rebuild will be fulfilled. And not only that, I understand that the only reason it was destroyed was so that we should be able to build something so much greater than what was before, and therefore I'm able to sing. But here's an amazing thing. Rabbi Akiva was living when? 2,000 years ago. How much time was it still going to be until it was going to be rebuilt? Obviously, it's already 2,000, close to 2,000 years later, and it hasn't been rebuilt yet. That means that Rabbi Akiva was able to see the goodness that's going to be in the third temple and the light of Mashiach, and he was able to sense it so strongly, even way back then when there was still 2,000 years of a bloody exile, and sing already at that time. How much more so us today, when we are so, so close, when we are at the threshold of redemption. The truth is, today's days, we shouldn't even be in darkness. We should be so enthused with redemption, so filled with Mashiach light, that we should just be living in Mashiach consciousness, and we have the capabilities and the ability to do so. If, God forbid, for whatever reason, we still are stuck in some mental prison of exile, we can't free ourselves from that dark, from those, even then, it's, not, it's never an excuse for depression and sadness. Because when we realize that no matter what it is that we're going through, this itself is going to lead us to such a great accomplish, to such, to such, such an achievement, such an elevated state, then we take it from Rabbi Akiva, who had it within him from Yaakov Avinu, that you can sing Shir HaMalos even when you are in the fields of Haran. And this is a very, very important for us. On the one hand, we may never, ever, ever make peace with the fact that Gullus is okay. The exile is not okay. It's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay. Even one extra minute in exile is absolutely not okay. Because we are children of God, we're the one and only child. The, the child belongs at his father's table. The fact that we have been here for thousands of years is absolutely, I mean, obviously we understand that God's ways are just and there's a reason for it, but we in our hand should never accept it. We should always be crying, Ad Masai, it's not, it's, it's, enough is enough, it's time for you, Hashem, to take us home. If a child doesn't yearn to go back home to their parents, is a sign there's something seriously wrong with their, with, their, with their relationship. We as Jews don't want to be here. But on the other hand, we understand that to get depressed in the fact that we're here, God forbid, we, we always recognize, Shir Hamalois, this is a song, this itself positive thinking, of, of, of always being besimcha and understanding the purpose of it all and the song that's associated with it will lead us to the real song, the Noim Alafan of Shir Chadash, the song of the Giyula. May it happen now, now, and now.
Oh